So we've been uh, talking about Jesus as light of the world in this whole Christmas series. We keep talking about him as the light of the world from a very specific viewpoint. But today, being that Christmas is only 10 days away, I want to tell you the Christmas story. I want to actually string together two accounts of the gospel in the gospels of the narrative of the birth of Jesus. Um, But before we do that, because I think it's so important for us to do that, because you're so busy during the season, I think it's easy for you to go through the season. You're going to all those holiday parties, all those family get-togethers, all those work parties, all that shopping, all that decorating, all of those things, and you can get through this whole season and not really ever pause and appreciate, really take in the Christmas story. And so that's our intent today. Now, if you remember, um, there's, there's four actual accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four first books of the New Testament. And of those, there's only two that tell the birth story. Mark is not one of them. Mark tells kind of the first direct approach of the scripture, and it is he's most direct. He's like, hey, you know what? Jesus came. He was the Messiah. He did miraculous things, and here we go. And he's off with the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, Matthew and Luke tell the narrative of the story, but John doesn't tell us so much what happened as much as he tells us why it happened. And it's actually kind of interesting, kind of fascinating, because John, who writes this book about why Jesus really came, he, he was actually, of all the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he actually understood the most about the birth story. And here's why. Because John was there when Jesus was crucified on the cross, and when he was crucified, Jesus looked down at him and said, John, Will you take care of my widowed mother? She's yours. So he basically said, John, this is your mother. Mary, this is your son. And as far as we know, John and Mary, he took care of Mary for the rest of her days. Walked with her. So if anyone knew the story, right, all the nitty-gritty details of Jesus' birth, right, like, hey, John, what color was the cloth that Jesus was wrapped in? John knows the answer. You know, hey, hey, what Joseph say at the birth? Like, like, what, how'd that go? Like, how tight did Mary squeeze his hand, right? Hey, hey, John, who did the first diaper change on Jesus, right? Like, like John knows all the details. And yet, when he writes this book, he chooses not to share all the details of the story. John starts his story very differently. In John chapter 1, he starts it this way. He says, listen, if if I'm going to tell you about the birth story, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, let me just start with the why. Why did Jesus come? Here's where he starts. He says, listen, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, John says, listen, I don't know if you're going to read the rest of this book. So let me just sum it all up for you. Let me get right to the point of all this. Listen, God became flesh. The the unfathomable God came down in the flesh and he dwelled amongst us. He camped out with us. He lived. I was there. I experienced it. And then John says, and here's what that means. Here's what it means to have lived with the living God in the flesh. He says, the true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. In other words, he's saying, listen, the true light came to give life to every single person in the world. Why is this so important? Because he's saying, listen, there is nobody outside 
of that. He's saying, listen, every single person in the world, Jesus came to bring light, to shed light in their life, to bring them into the light. When Jesus showed up, he came to bring light, not just to our lives, but to the darkest regions of our life, to the things that we would most like not to be brought out into the light. He says, I came to bring light there too. I came to bring it all out in the light so you don't have to hide it. You don't have to be afraid of it. You don't have to run from it. Like I came to bring light everywhere. And when Jesus did that, here's the really cool thing. He helped us begin to understand things about ourselves that we've never understood. When Jesus shines the light into our inner world, we begin to understand things about God that we were like, I didn't get that about God. I don't understand that about God. And Jesus came and he shed light on it so that we could. And Jesus says, when John shares about the gospel, he says, listen, this is why Jesus came. This is what's important about Jesus. He came to bring out that out of us. He came to shine the light on the inner parts of our life that we're like, eh, I don't know if anybody should know that. He's like, I came to bring light even there, to the darkest parts of your inner life. Why is that important? Because listen, I mean, y'all, y'all live in Pennsylvania, right? So you know, you know what good Pennsylvania people do, right? I feel, I, wait, is that a feeling I feel that's unpleasant? Shove it back down, right? Is that, wait, my, my past, my family of origin? No, it was great right? It was perfect. Nothing ever went wrong. I'm fine. I'm fine. My parents are fine. Everything's fine, right? And this time of the year, we're doing a lot of shoving stuff back down. And I think that John looked ahead to see all those good Pennsylvania people in the room and went, I came to set you free from that. Jesus came to set you free from that, to show, give you a new picture of your life, to say, listen, there is stuff in your life and you don't need to hide from it anymore. There is stuff in your life, and you don't need to run from it anymore. There is stuff in your life, and you don't have to be driven by it anymore. I came to set you free. I came to do something new. But we're a bit like, you know, our kids when we tell them to clean up their rooms. Have you told your children to clean up their rooms? You know what happens when you tell your children to clean up their rooms? Right? They go up into their rooms, right? They look around on the floor. They look over at the bed, and they do this, right? Everything goes underneath the bed. So, you, you, you know, you come up, and they're like, is it clean? Yeah, it's clean. And you go up to the room, right, and you look around the floor, and you're, you, know, you weren't born yesterday, so you're like, oh, you did a nice job with the floor. Let's just, let's just take a look under the bed, right? They're like, no, 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 don't look under the bed. You look under the bed, right? There are 100 unmatched socks under the bed that you've been looking for, right, since they were three. You're like, how did these get here, right? There's dirty clothes under there. There are contraband snacks right, that are growing the kind of mold that could only be grown in a laboratory and should not be in the rooms, right? There are juice boxes underneath there that you're like, these things are fermented and I am going to get arrested for serving minors if they drink out of those things, right? Like this is, this is what you find under there and, and that's the way we do in our own lives. Like when there's painful feelings, right, when there's something messy in our life, shove it under the bed, just keep it under there. I, don't, I mean, it would just be nice to look around my life and pretend that it's, it's nice and it's neat and it's all right. But the truth is we all know it's there. And Jesus came to shine light on that and said, I don't want you living a fake life. I don't want you living an inauthentic life. I want you to be whole. I want you to be real. And you know what happens when darkness comes into our life? The dark darkness that's in our life and when light comes into it, we begin to discover that life without God is nothing. 
compared to life with God. So what God has to offer us is so much better. Then, here's what John does. He turns the corner, and he makes it super personal. It's like, listen, let me make this really personal. John 1.12, he begins, he goes on to say, listen, to all, to all who did, to all. Do you know who to all is? To all is you, to all is me, to all is your mom and your mother-in-law, right? And, and your crazy uncle that you hope doesn't even come to any of the Christmas functions this year because nobody knows what to do with him. And to your boss that you don't even like that much. And to your, to your brother-in-law, like it's all of them, everybody that you're going to cross paths with, to all, right? To all. Nobody's excluded from this. To all who did receive him. Now, do you know what you have to do to receive something? What do you have to do? If you want to receive something, what do you have to do? Right? you got to open up. You can't receive something like this. Right? Nobody even wants to give you something like this, even though this is your, like your natural serial killer Pennsylvania face. I see it every Sunday, right? And people afterwards are like, that was the best sermon ever. I'm like, really? Because the whole time you look like this. Right? Like, so, like, listen, like, you've got to open up to receive him. You've got to open up to receive him. You've got to be like, I want something to all that were open to his embrace. This is what John's saying. If we're open to his embrace. And then I think he kind of paused for a moment as he was writing this. And he was like, is that enough? You know, is that, is that like all there is? Will they, will they get that, that they're like, like to all, to, it's everybody, it's going to open the I was like, it's not quite enough. And so John does something because he can't quite describe it enough. He does something that we all do when we can't quite describe something, right? When we can't quite find the right word for it, we make up a word, right? We, we find a word, we put a combination together that makes sense. Now, we do this all the time. In fact, if, if you're in our culture today, you hear people say this all the time. In fact, I think, I think I'm just going to assume that it comes out of like maybe the Christian culture, that there was somebody that was not satisfied with the word to love, like you should love somebody, and they were like, eh, that's not quite enough, that's not quite, I mean, because they were afraid that someone, when you say, I'm just going to love them, you're like, oh, well, they're just going to say like, I love you, and that's going to be enough, and they're just going to, you know, going to be like, oh yeah, I'm loving, you know, and so they were like, well, that's not quite enough, so they made up this phrase, right, and they said, well, okay, I want you to love on them, right, and you're like, all right, and, and you, you, some of you have said it, right? You've heard other people say it, and sometimes you hear people say it, and you're like, that doesn't even sound good, right? I don't think you should be saying that in that context, right? Like, to love on somebody, and, but here's what it means. It means you got to put your love into action, right? Because it's not enough just to say, like, oh, I love you, but what we're really saying is we need you to take action. And so this is what John does. He's writing this, and he does something that has not been in, used in literature up to this point. He takes this Greek word, pistio, and, and he takes it and he combines it with another word because he says it's not quite enough. It's not just like to all those who believed. It's not just believed. And so he says, I'm going to add this in to, to all those who believed in. In other words, it's not good enough just to believe like, hey, Jesus was a guy. Right? It's not just good enough to say, I believe what Jesus said. John's like, ah, that's not quite it. I don't want you to think that this is like Jesus was just a part of history or just a story. I don't want you to think that Jesus was just a good teacher or a, a good philosopher or a good miracle worker, like a one-off that never happened again. Like, that's not quite it. And so what he says is, listen, I want you to believe 
in, to place your belief, to place your trust, to entrust yourself to. I want you to understand that this is God in the flesh, God incarnate, the God that you thought you could not know, the God that you thought I could not understand, the God that you thought might be far away or might be judgmental, or I don't know who he is. I want you to, Jesus says, I'm coming that you might know him. And John says, and I think he got this from Jesus, that you might believe in, you might entrust yourself to Jesus so that you might have a relationship with God, that you might become convinced, convicted that God is the person that you can really trust in life. So John says, to all those that believe, all those that receive him, to those that believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. In other words, this ain't just a story. This ain't just like, oh, well, hey, that's good. Nice, nice story about Jesus. This is personal. John says, this is as personal as it gets. It's not just about all of them everywhere. It's like to every single person, Jesus came and said, I don't want you not to belong in the family of God. I want to invite you in in a very personal way to have a very personal relationship with the God of the universe. And he says, in case you don't quite get that, John 20, 31, at the end of his book, he does it again. He comes back and says, I know you might not have gotten this. I just want you to get this. Verse 31, he says, but these things are written that you might believe in him, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, not just anybody, but the Son of God, God himself, and that by believing, you might what? You might have life in his name. Not physical life, you already have physical life, that you might have spiritual life, that you might have the kind of life that makes you whole and real. And John says, that's why I wrote the book. That's why Jesus came. It is something more than just, you know, God loved all the who's in the world. It was like God loved all the you's and the me's. God loved every single one of us because it's not just this thing that you should be a part of and you should just check off the list. I went to church. I, 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 yeah, I, I know about God. It's like, no, I want a relationship with you that is personal. John wanted you to know that Jesus didn't just die for everybody. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for your sin. Jesus died in a very personal way. That is where we get this idea. When you hear somebody say, Jesus is my personal Savior, I've had him as my personal Savior. This is what it means. What they mean is that they re they've recognized that Jesus came in a very individual way, way with his name on their lips as he died. And he said, listen, I came for you. I laid down my life for you. I laid down my life for your sin, your past, present, and future sin because I care that much about you. And all I do want is that you might believe in me. You might entrust yourself to me. Now, here's, here's the coolest thing. And I, I want to share this, and then I promise we'll actually tell the Christmas story, okay? So here's the coolest thing. It took Matthew, and it took Peter, and it took John, and it took Andrew, and it took all those disciples. It took them three years, three years before they figured this out. Understand, they, they walked with Jesus, and they didn't know it was personal. I mean, when, they, when Jesus came, do you know what they were thinking? Hey, when are you going to save Israel? When are you going to be the politician that you came to be? 
When are you going to pass all the right laws? When are you going to overthrow Roman rule? When are you going to make our lives a little bit better? When are you going to make the taxes a little bit better, right? When are you going to kind of get the show on the road and do the whole messiahing thing, right? Like, that's what, that's the, for three years, for three years, they keep waiting for him to do something, but he never does. For three years, it took them to understand that Jesus was the Son of God, God incarnate, that they were experiencing God himself and that it broke the mold of everything they thought about God and changed everything about who God is. Three years, they had the wrong agenda. And here's why this is important. And before we read the Christmas story, here's why I want you to understand this, because a lot of us have the wrong agenda when it comes to God, when it comes to Jesus. See, we, we go, yeah, Jesus, you know what? I would love you to save me, right? I'd love you to save my way of life. I'd love you to save my finances. I would love you to save, you know, me from the sickness or from this messy relationship. I'd love you to kind of make things a little bit smoother in my life. And I'm not saying that Jesus can't do that and that Jesus doesn't do that because Jesus does all kind of amazing stuff. But that ain't his agenda. And I don't want you to enter into the Christmas story thinking that that's his agenda. His agenda is so much more important, so much more powerful because, and I don't want you to miss this, Jesus didn't come just to save you from behavior. Jesus came to save you from all those doubts you have that you could ever be lovable. Jesus came to save you from all those motivations that always get twisted up in you. Even when you're trying to do something good, you end up being a little bit selfish. Jesus came to save you from all those times when you're like, ah, I got this tendency to, to worship success. I prioritize success over God. Jesus came to save you from those places where you would rather please people than please God. Jesus came to save you from all those appealing nature that has to be the most powerful person in the room or to have control and instead just ignore God. Jesus came to save you from all of that. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to be a one-on-one, very personal Savior. And if John was here, I think this is the question he'd say. He'd say, listen, do you believe? Do you, to steal his words, do you believe in? Do you, are you ready to lean your weight on, to entrust yourself to, to know that supernatural relationship could be? And you know what I think he'd say if you were like, I don't know? He'd say, listen, if you don't know, don't give up because it took me three years to figure this out. He'd say, keep asking Keep seeking, because when you discover him, when you get to know him, when all those hidden areas of your life come into the light, it will change your life forever. He says, listen, I know because I was there. I saw him do miraculous things. I heard him speak. I was there when Peter got out of the boat, started walking on water, and we were like, yeah, Peter. And then he started sinking. We were like, oh, Peter, how embarrassing. Right? Like, like he says, I was there. He's like, and I thought it was all about that stuff, and then I realized it's not about what's on the outside. It's not about Jesus saving me from my circumstances, you know. We, we thought when he came, he was going to save us from Rome. And then we thought he was going to save us from our taxes and all the money problems we had. And then we thought he was going to save us from somebody else. And I thought the problem was him, or I thought the problem was her. And then I realized the problem is sin. And it's not on the outside. It's what's coming out of me. That's what I need saving from. That's what I need changed. That's what I need delivered from. And so this Christmas, this is why I'm going to tell you the story this way, is I just, 
I don't want you to kid yourself about the purpose and the reason that Jesus came. It wasn't to be your helper. It was to be your Savior. Change everything in your life. And John would say, trust me, I know. So, ready for now? Ready for the Christmas story? Okay, here we go. Now, the Christmas story takes place in two. There's two narratives, and I just want to string them together a little bit. The first one that we're going to start with is from Luke, okay? Luke chapter 1 and 2, we're going to string that together. Now, Luke is not Luke from, you know, Darth Vader's Luke. It's not that guy, okay? Luke is this guy who was a doctor, and he wrote a very accurate, a very precise, he talked to eyewitnesses. This is a guy who said, I'm going to write the account of Jesus by actually going and interviewing and doing all of the research to give a very, and he, he starts this way, a very orderly account. He doesn't start with like, hey, once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. He says, listen, this is history, and I want you to understand it, and I have put it together in a very accurate way with all of the details that I could muster. That's where Luke starts. So, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Here's, here we go. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now remember, he's putting anything he knows into this account, all of the bloodlines, everything else. And of course, he says, he says, and the virgin's name was, say it with me, the virgin's name was Mary. Right, okay. You guys heard the story before. That's good. All right, verse 28, the virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. She wondered what kind of greeting this might be, and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Now, let's do a little Christmas trivia here for you, a little I'm going to just beef it up a little bit so you can sound super smart next time you tell the Christmas story, okay? So here's a little, little trivia for you that maybe you didn't know. Mary doesn't speak English. Huh? Well, I didn't know that. Mary doesn't speak English. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek. Mary doesn't speak probably Greek either. Mary speaks the common language that Jesus spoke, which was Aramaic. And so when, when, you know, you know when you, you dream, you don't usually dream in somebody in a different language that's not your native tongue, right? Like, usually dream, like, and, and if I dream like that, I don't understand anything anybody's saying. That's kind of how the dream goes. But when you dream or when you have a vision or when someone speaks to you, right, you're thinking in your native tongue's concepts. And so when, when Mary gets spoken to by the angel, she doesn't hear the transliterated word Jesus because that word doesn't exist in Aramaic. She hears the word Yeshua. Because that's her native tongue. And that's why Yeshua is actually gets transliterated to actually either Joshua or Jesus. It actually gets transliterated either way depending on the context. And so when she hears this word, this is why this is important, she hears the word Joshua, that, that name that kind of comes out at first that's either Jesus or Joshua. Like Yeshua. She thinks deliverer. Because that's who Joshua was in the Old Testament. He was a deliverer by people into the, into the promised land. He delivered them out of oppression. Like that's who Joshua was. So she hears that. She's like, oh, I know who this is. She knows the name, meaning of this name. It's embedded in all of her culture, in all of her religion. The Lord is salvation, Yeshua. And so when the angel speaks the word Yeshua, she thinks Messiah. The Messiah has come. She knows who he's speaking about. She 
We don't know exactly what all of it means, but she knows it's the Messiah, the Deliverer. Right? So now, the next time someone tells you the Christmas story, right, call him Jesus, you can let him know all the trivia behind it, what's really going on behind the scenes. So here we go. Tell, well, we're gonna, you're going to sound a lot smarter next time you, see, you tell the Christmas story. Verse 32, he will be great. Jesus will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants, that would be Israel, and his kingdom will never end. His kingdom will go all over the earth. It will never end. And then, so, so, so this is kind of the, we're going to take a break from Luke for a second, jump over to Matthew. I want you to hear Matthew's perspective. Now realize, Matthew is someone who considered him an outside, himself an outsider to faith. He was not on the inside circle. He was not invited to church. He was the guy that nobody even wanted to invite to church because he wasn't, you didn't invite that guy to church, right? And so when he comes to Jesus, he sees something about faith in a way that many of us might just miss because he knows what that's like. And so he tells the story with the important things that stick out to him in the story of Jesus' birth that he relates to. Matthew 1, 18, 21 to 24. Here we go. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to marry Joseph. Now, these words here are important for us to understand culturally. When someone was pledged in Jewish culture to be married, okay, they were legally bound together. There was no consummation of the marriage. Okay? They were not intimate yet. They did not live together yet. They did not cohabitate together yet. But they were pledged. They were legally bound together as married. In other words, there is no messing around. There is no, you had, it would be a divorce if you got, if you separated at that point. It's not just an engagement. They were pledged to be married to Joseph. And it goes on to say, but before they came together, so before they consummated, before the final wedding day, before they got intimate, she was found out to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, this was like a big deal in the culture. I mean, she would begin to show, and there's no way to get around that she's pregnant, but she's not married yet, and Joseph isn't claiming that the baby is his. And suddenly, everybody, there's all these rumors, right? There's all these murmurings about what's going on there, what's the story. And of course, there's this crazy story that Mary has come up with, that God has put a child in her, a divinely inspired child is in her. That does not belong to Joseph or any other man, right? And everybody's saying what you would say. Well, that's convenient, right? That's a convenient story. Nobody's really buying that. But since they're legally pledged, Joseph is like, I don't know what to do here. Because legally, she could be executed. She could be put outside the village. And so Joseph, because Joseph is her husband and was faithful to law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after considering this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua. The Lord is our salvation. Because, and at this point, he's thinking Messiah. He's like, ha, oh, yeah, because he's going to save Israel. He's going to deliver us. He's going to like, you know, this is great. We've been under Roman oppression for years. And finally, finally, God is sending the Messiah to deliver us. Finally, Yeshua has come. And the angel says, so he's come to save you from Rome. No, that's not what the angel says. He says, he will save his people from what? From their sins. Sins? 
I mean, for a Jewish man in the first century, they're going, that's not really a pressing problem right now. I mean, we're the Jewish people. We got the corner on the market on how to deal with sins. We have an elaborate dealing with sin system. We have a temple. There are sacrifices at the temple. There's a whole 600-plus law thing we got going on. We are very moral. We got our act together when it comes to sin. You know what? If anybody needs saving from sin, it's the Romans, right? They got a sin problem, but we, we got our act together. We're pretty good. We're pretty got our act together. And God says, no, like, it's not the Romans that need saving from sin. It's all of us. And he's thinking, God, that's kind of a waste of a savior, you know, to deal with sin. Like, go, go deal with Herod. Go deal with Roman, the Roman emperor. Go deal with one of those things. And I think we feel the same way sometimes when we go, I just, I just deliver me from my circumstances. Just make my life a little easier. I, I don't want to deal with the sin thing. Verse 24, it says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home to be his wife. Then we jump back into Luke's account. There's something really cool about Luke's account. Remember, he is historical, he is accurate, and this is what he says happened. He gives us all the details. Verse 1, chapter 2, he says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, right? Everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, and then to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Okay, so this is kind of amazing. So Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth. Right? This is where they live. This is where their family lives. So where do they think they're going to have the baby? Nazareth. Like, yeah, okay, we're going to have this baby in Nazareth. But somewhere in the empire, God kind of gets somebody, elbows somebody, and they go to Caesar Augustus. They say, listen, we got to count people. We got to take care of account. And so you got to get everybody to go back to their hometowns where they're from, and you got to get them to get account. So David, or, or uh, sorry, Joseph is of the line of David who is from Bethlehem. So guess who has to go to Bethlehem and take his pregnant wife to Bethlehem? And all of a sudden, we have God, and this is really cool. We have God at work behind the scenes, and nobody seems to know it, where he has had an emperor become part of a story that we would all know. It gets a footnote mention in the story because God elbowed him at work behind the scenes to get him to do something that would fulfill a prophecy that was 800 years old that his son would be born in Bethlehem. See, God's always at work, even when you don't know it, even when you can't see it, even when you don't know what's going on. God is at work. And so, right, they, they get on their way to Bethlehem, and of course, Mary is riding a donkey. You know which verse that's in? That would be no verses. Like, it's not actually in the Bible, right? We made that up, right? It, it, it's a nice picture. She's on the donkey. It looks kind of cool. There's no actual scripture that says that she's on a donkey. And, and I think, honestly, it's just better than the alternative. Nobody wants to tell the story about the nine-month pregnant lady who walked five to seven days, Right? to get to where she was going. Nobody wants to tell the story about Mary, nine months pregnant on the back of the wagon, bumping up and down like this, right? Nobody likes that story. And so there's the donkey, right? That's how he gets into the story. It looks better. Anyway, verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths, and she placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, why shepherds? Like, why does God pick to reveal? He comes, God incarnate, and he decides to announce his birth to who? To shepherds. Why shepherds? Why not, like, why don't he go to all the preachers and announce it to them, right? I mean, they can't keep a secret, right? They'll tell everybody. Like, why not go to the plumbers or to the guys at the bar? Why the shepherds? I don't know why the shepherds, but I know something about the shepherds that's really intriguing. It's kind of ironic. The shepherds, all right, the shepherds are these guys who, well, they care for sheep and lambs and all that kind of stuff, and they're in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem. And so in this time of the year, in their region outside Jerusalem, they would be near the temple, and so on a regular basis, people would come to them, right? Can I buy a lamb from you? Can I buy a sheep from you? Can I buy something that's going to represent the slaughter, the sacrifice that's going to ceremonially cleanse me? But the shepherds themselves, I mean, if you're a shepherd, you're following the sheep, and you're stepping in things that come out of the sheep, right? And so you are always, always ceremonially unclean. You are never allowed in the temple in which you are supplying the symbol of the forgiveness of sins. You are never allowed to actually go in because you're always ceremonially unclean. And God comes to those people. God comes to the shepherds and says, I know that you're ceremonially unclean. I know that you think you're not welcome. But I'm going to choose to announce to you that the birth of Christ has come, that the Messiah has come, that God in the flesh has come. I am choosing to announce to you. And when the angel comes, they are terrified. You know why? Because when God shows up, it's not just a nice, warm, fuzzy. When you experience God, it changes you. It is like overwhelming. It is unsettling. That's why, like, when you, why should you come to worship? Because when you get in the presence of the glorious God, you are overwhelmed by it. That's why we don't preach like how-to sermons here at Daybreak. Like, how-to is great. Like, there's good advice to be had out of Scripture, and it will change your life. But you need more than just how-to. You need the living Christ himself. You need an encounter with God that is powerful, that it's like that, that near-death experience. If you've ever had one of those, that, like, you can never look at life the same again. It changes you. That is what an encounter with God is all about. That is why Jesus came, that you might have a personal Savior, a very personal encounter with God himself that might make you fall to your knees in worship and say, I want to do something different. And so the angel says to the shepherds, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause you great joy. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. And he is the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And the angels, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds sent to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. Let us see this thing that the Lord has told us about. See, this is not the most wonderful time of the year because of what is happening, but what already happened. That's what the shepherds say. Like, listen, because of what already happened, this is the most wonderful time of the year. It's not most wonderful because we can't get into the temple. It's not most wonderful because everything's working out. It's most wonderful because the Messiah has come, because Jesus has come, because God incarnate has hit the planet. That is why we cherish 
this story. Because the Savior has come. And so they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they'd been told about the child. And all who heard were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary, Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. You know why? Because Mary's reputation is shattered. No one believes Mary. So she just treasures these things in her heart. Because one day, one day Mary would go from that baby in a manger to see her son die on a cross. And then she would peer into an empty tomb of a resurrected Christ. And she treasured all of those things in her heart. And she began to understand what John was trying to say to us. You see, Matthew and Luke, they do their best to kind of summarize, to, to tell the narrative of the story. But John, John sums it up. John is the one who says, this is why it's so important. He says, I've seen it all. I've experienced it all. I'm, I'm an old man, and I have lived it all. And with God's help, John says it this way. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever, here it is again, whoever believes in, whoever entrusts themselves to, whoever leans their weight on, will have eternal life. Can you imagine him writing that? Like thinking, I wonder if anyone's going to read the story. I wonder what's going to happen with this time. 2,000 years later, people gather all around the world to read it and to cherish it. Most of us can probably even quote John 3.16. But that verse that we can quote, sometimes as kids you might have memorized that, but you didn't, you didn't memorize the next verse because John didn't stop there. And where John goes from here, this whole believes in where he takes it, is why we really celebrate Christmas. And here it is. This is, this is the important part of the Christmas story that you've got to get when the light comes into the world. Why is this so important? Why is this so good? Because here it is, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. Because the angels came to the shepherds were right. Glory to God in the highest. God has come. And he's come to save you. The angels that told were right when they told Mary and Joseph, Yeshua, the Lord, is our salvation. God sent his savior a Savior into the world, not to condemn you, not to put you down, not to tell you what you already know, that you're not always lovable, that you don't always have it together, that there is pain in your path, that there are things you're not proud of. He didn't come to tell you all about that because you already know it. He came that you might have salvation through him because I know we come to Christmas and I know you think you know what you need. It's rest, the days off, the right thing more comfortable life, but God says, I know what you really need. Down deep, in the recesses of who you are, you need to know that you're not condemned, that you are loved, that that sin that is in you that keeps coming out, you can't seem to stop it, that there is a way past it, that there is a Savior who came to save you, because I know this because Jesus came to save me. He has, he has saved me and been saving me from all those doubts that I could ever be lovable enough. That God would accept me. 
He came to help me be saved from all those selfish motivations where I start good and I'm finishing wrong. And in the middle, he comes. He says, no, I came to save you from that. All those behaviors I can't seem to stop. He said, I came to save you from that. And he came to save you too. And all those angry outbursts that you have that you're just like, oh, I always regret that. You know, from, from your inability to get that relationship quite right, he came to save you from that secret addiction that you've not told anybody and you hope no one ever discovers. He came to shine light on it and say, I'm not condemning you, I came to save you. From that selfish desire that always seems to creep up and get in the way. He came to save you. He just isn't here to condemn you. He just wants to come into your life and bring light into your darkness so that you may be changed forever. Will you close your eyes, you bow your heads with me for a second in a spirit of prayer? Listen, as you reflect on this message, before we pray, and I want to give you a prayer, but some of you have been in church for a long time, and you would even say, Jesus is my Savior. But you hear the story that John tells again, and you realize that saving is not just a one-time event, that we need saving every single day of our life, that Jesus needs to keep saving us every single day. You don't need a Savior once. You need Him every day, every moment, every hour. And so just a minute, I'm going to offer you a prayer to pray, to resonate with that again, to say, this Christmas, Jesus, that's my prayer. I need your Savior. And some of you, you're here today and you've never actually asked Jesus to save you. You might have been even trying to follow Jesus. You might be trying, you might have prayed to him, you might have asked him for help. You may have said, God, I, I need your help, but have you ever asked him to save you? Have you ever actually said, God, I, I give you consent, Jesus, to invade my life, to bring in your light and invade me and change me? I know that sounds risky. But listen, Jesus took a big risk just for the chance that you might take a risk on him. Make him personal. A very personal relationship with him. So I would invite you to make it personal. And so I'm just going to pray a prayer right now. One of the most wonderful prayers I've ever prayed, but I still pray. And I just invite you to pray right where you are. If you're someone who has said, I'm already saved, then I would invite you to pray it. Pray it aloud. Pray it right after me. Let it be your declaration today. Uh, Jesus, I still need you. And if it's your first time, you can pray it. Right? Just repeat after me as I pray it and let it be your declaration today as well. Here it is. Just repeat after me. Jesus, I need you to save me from my Jesus, I need you to save me from my doubts. Jesus, I believe in, I entrust myself to you. You are God incarnate. I open myself up. Today, Jesus, I embrace you as my Savior. And I give you consent 
forever change my life. Amen.